showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Son, you got a panty on your head. Just drive fast, eh? Turn to the right! The first time I met Ed was in the county lockup in Tempe, Arizona. You're a flower, you are. A day I'll never forget. I do. You bet I do. Okay, then. My lawless years were behind me. Our child-rearing years lay ahead. But... Biology conspired to keep us childless. You go right back up there and get me a toddler. I need a baby high. They got more than I can handle. At the time, his little plan seemed like the solution to all our problems. And the answer to all our prayers. He's beautiful. What? Are you kidding? We got us a family here. I want Nathan Jr. back. What's his name? Ed Jr. Hi, Jr. So far, we've just been using Jr. We call him Jr. He's out there somewhere. Hold on, Nathan. We're gonna go pick up Daddy. I've been taking these huggies and uh, whatever cash you got. <laughs> you busted out of jail. We released Prashaz on our own recognizance. What Evel here is trying to say is that we felt the institution no longer had anything to offer us. <laughs> we got a child now! Everything's changed! Where's Junior? <laughs> Who the hell are you? I'm a fan. We're absolutely going to get him back. There just ain't no question about that. Give me that baby, you warthog from hell! <laughs> and you want to know another thing? I'm going to be a better person from here on out. Let's go get Nathan Jr. Raising Arizona, a comedy beyond belief. Well, it ain't Ozzy and Harriet. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Rob St. Mary. You're young and you've got your health. What do you want with a job? Also back in the booth is Mr. Keith Gordon. I don't have a line prepared. Oh, man. I didn't realize that was the assignment, but it was. I like that one. We round out a month of discussions about comedic films with a look at the Coen Brothers' 1987 film Raising Arizona. It is the story of recidivist... Repeat offender. Criminal H.I. McDonough, also known as High, and his marriage to Edwina, a police officer. They find that they are unable to sire a child and do the most sensible thing about it, steal one from the famous Arizona Quince, from unpainted furniture retailer Nathan Arizona himself, and hell, you know who he is. I sincerely hope that everyone within the sound of my voice has seen Raising Arizona, but if not, you just owe it to yourself to go and watch the movie first before hearing us talk about it. So Rob, when was the first time you saw Raising Arizona and what did you think? I have a very specific memory the first time I saw this, and I was young. 
I was 10. And it was probably the year after it came out, which would have been 1988, year it came out on VHS. And I was at my parents' friend's house, and I think they had rented it, and we all watched it together. And I loved it as a 10-year-old kid. And I didn't see it again until I got into high school. Now, at that time, I had no idea at 10 years old who the Coen brothers were. I just knew that this was this crazy little movie. And then it became like one of my favorite films. It is one of my favorite comedies of all time. And then when I made my little silly little vampire film when I was 19, totally unrelated to me, like I had no input on the script. The co-producer, friend of mine at the time who wrote the script has a whole section in there about how he was dating this woman and he decided to stop seeing her because she failed the Raising Arizona test. Jennifer? Well, Jennifer failed the test. No, you didn't give her the Raising Arizona test. Fucking A, I did, and there's no way the relationship could continue because she failed that test. What the hell does that prove? It proves everything, all right? If you cannot enjoy a brilliant cinematic comedic masterpiece like Joel and Ethan's Raising Arizona, then you are bound, I mean like genetically bound, to show up with deeper, numerous human flaws somewhere along the line. And Will Chamberlain, you're the last one who should be lecturing me about my love life. I agree with that. There is very few people that I've watched this movie with over the years who it was maybe their first time seeing it and didn't love it. To me, it's it's broad enough. It's a big enough kind of good hearted comedy, but it also has some really fun stuff in there in some deeper levels that I really enjoy and still enjoy it. Like I said, I've been watching it, I guess, 35 years or so, and it's still a favorite. Well, I've never seen it, but I hear really good things. No, uh, damn, it's another Elvira episode. (laughs) (laughs) No, I saw it when it very first came out, but it's funny. My reaction at the time much like a lot of the critics, I, I was not that blown away by it. You know, I had been a huge fan of Blood Simple. I saw Blood Simple at the New York Film Festival when it hadn't, nobody really seen it yet. And, you know, everybody was so charged. It was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And this, these guys have this new voice. And it was just, everybody was, you know, super excited. And then this was the follow-up film. And critically, it got very mixed responses. And I remember the time thinking, oh, it's too silly. It's too goofy. And, you know, where's all that deeper thematics that, that they, you know, they were promising. And and then as has happened with a lot of my very favorite films, there was a really an evolution with it, you know, where, you know, I saw it again a few years later and I liked it more. And I saw it a few years later and I liked it more still. And somewhere in there, yeah, it became a very favorite film and among my very, very top film of, of the Coen brothers. I mean, it, it's a film now that I deeply love, but it was, it was a process of coming to greet it on its terms rather than expecting it to be something that it wasn't. And understanding that underneath the, the wackiness, the humor, there was an incredible amount of depth. But I will plead guilty. Well, but again, like I say, a lot of the critical establishment was also that way at the time that everybody was sort of expecting the next blood simple. And that's always a problem because what they did was they did something new and special and different rather than repeating themselves. And everyone was sort of confused by that. Yeah, they have a an interesting knack of exploring genres and just going to places that you don't necessarily expect and when you think they're going to go left, they suddenly go right with films that they put out. Who would have thought that they, this is somewhat of a Western, but now it's, oh yeah, Old Brother, We're Out Thou, True Grit, even No Country for Old Men. These are all Westerns now, and it's, oh, okay, but then you still have the CIA movie that they did, or, or Cruel Intentions, or just that Cruel Intentions, what was that? 
Intolerable cruelty. Intolerable cruelty. Oh, yes. Just things that you don't necessarily expect. A remake of The Lady Killers. Like, where did that come from? This is, it's always and, interesting. And another one of their films that I've come to like way more. Like, at first, you know, like, oh, it's not as good as the original. And now I've come to really love it on its own terms. And I think that's filmmakers that are brave and combine things in odd ways. Often, you kind of need to see things again and go back to them. And like I say, if I looked at a list of my top 50 films of all time, probably 30 of them, I wasn't blown away the first time. And it was only on revisiting that I really found, oh, now I get it. And then how could I not have gotten it before? This movie kind of sets up what it what would be the checkerboard for them. Because the thing I noticed is they went from serious to absurd to serious to absurd. And they did this like every other film for a while, for about 20 years. And then... It seems like they don't get as absurd as much. They got much more serious later. I actively refused to see this film when it was out. I had seen Peggy Sue Got Married and was just so not a fan of this this Nicolas Cage guy. Who the hell is this guy anyway? It's some sort of weird nepotism going on here. He's actually Nicholas Coppola. I had made a movie called Peggy Sue Got Married. Cher had seen that movie. And she immediately said, I saw Peggy Sue Got Married and I thought I was your performance was like watching a two-hour car accident. He was okay in Birdie and Rumblefish. He was all right. Small roles. Valley Girl, he was really good in. I don't need to see that. I saw that performance in Peggy Sue and I just didn't like it at all. And then I basically, one of my college friends was like, you have to watch this movie. You of all people are going to love this movie. And basically sat me down and I wouldn't say forced me to watch this movie, but it, there was a lot of cajoling going on. Some clockwork orange lidlocks involved, I guess, maybe. <laughs> Just yeah. about. And I don't have to tell you guys, though, that first 11 minutes before the credits even roll, it just grabs you and throttles you. And I fell in love and I was just like, oh, my God, where has this movie been for the last five years? You actively refuse to see it, you idiot. And then after that, it was like, let's watch Raising Arizona pretty much as I possibly could. And oh, my God, do I love it. This is one of those where never gets old and there are just the, the use of the music, the dialogue, the camera work, pretty much give me any aspect of filmmaking. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, this movie excels in that production design. Whatever you got, this movie excels at it. It is so quotable. Like, I can't tell you. Actually, when we were making my stupid little vampire movie, when we were ready to do a take, we'd be like, we're set the pop here, honey. We would say that to each other because they take the photo with the kid. So, I mean, there's just even just little, just the phrasing, the dialogue in here. Talking to Mike about this before we started recording, we see this later. You wouldn't know this. Obviously, Keith, you wouldn't know this when you saw this because you don't know what they're going to do 10 years down the line. But to me, I think from a, a dialogue standpoint, it shares a lot with like Fargo, where it's supposed to be a regional, but it's not really. It's got this kind of weird mash and then the oh, brothers the same way. Even though it's odd, it's like it's so charming in its way of doing that. It's really odd. Like I can't think of too many filmmakers that can pull that off like that. Well, and they've done that really consistently. They write this odd, poetic. I mean, their dialogue is almost never naturalistic. I mean, their dialogue is not the way people talk, and that's what's amazing about it because it works really well. I mean, you know, it's something I feel like I've seen a number of people try to do. But it usually fails to write this kind of not naturalistic, poetic dialogue. 
but yet have it not be distracting or dopey or just why are you doing that? And their stuff, it flows so beautifully. And in this movie, to me, that actually hasn't, there's a, yeah, one of the things I came to love about the movie is I think it adds a lot because one of the one of the things the movie was accused of early on, and I understood it, and I actually felt it as now again, I don't at all, was making fun of rural people and making fun of poor people. And, and I actually think the language is one of the things that balances it because as much as their use of language is goofy and strange, it's also very poetic and beautiful. And there's malapropisms, but there's also beautiful ways of expressing themselves. And I actually think the movie is like a fascinating movie in that whole arena because on the surface it is it is you know make fun of the dumb rural folk, and then you get into the movie and you realize it's way deeper than that and it's way more complicated and it's basically yeah you really think you're smarter than them you really think this isn't all of us you really think you know and I th- somehow think though the poeticness of the language is part of what creates that balance of yeah they're dopes and we're all dopes and we're all insane and we're all and yes they're cartoons. But aren't we all? And I, somehow that language is an important part of why that works. And that was the thing that I got going forward through their work is the people who you wouldn't expect to be able to use these words. Like why, like, for example, John Goodman's character, he uses the word domicile. We're here in your domicile. Why use domicile when you just say house or that in their work over and over with these characters who you're like, these words just seem too big. It, that's that artificiality you're really talking about, but lends something like it's almost like there is an intelligence, but they don't know how to handle the intelligence well or something. I can't quite explain it, but it really helps to flesh out the character in a way. There's a whole theme, too, of people not understanding each other. When High is talking with M.M. at Walsh and he's, oh, me and Bill were part of this highway patrol thing. Bill Parker, no, not that mother scratcher. It's there's always like little things where it's even when Glenn is talking about swinging, he has to say it in so many different ways. I'm talking about Lamore. I'm talking about wife swapping. And he, like each time they're saying things, they have to explain themselves several times. And the whole scene of the one cop trying to ask Nathan Arizona about what was going on. And then you've got the two FBI agents and the FBI agents are acting like translators for this local cop. And the local cops just trying to get his questions in there. Was the child oh, wearing are... anything when he was abducted? Nobody sleeps naked in this house. I am asking the wearing... questions, officer. If we're going to put an APB out, I need a description. Yes, we're wearing... better trained to intervene in a crisis situation. What was he wearing? A dinner jacket. What do you think? He's wearing his damn jammies. Child was wearing his jammies. You happy? Do you have any disgruntled employees? Hell, they're all disgruntled. I ain't running a damn daisy farm. What did the my motto say? is do it my way or watch your butt. So what you think it might have been an employee? Oh, don't make me laugh. Without my say so, they wouldn't piss with their pants on fire. What did the pajamas look say? like? I don't know. They were jammies. They had Yodas and shit on them. Everybody has problems communicating with one another. And even when it comes to these balloons come in funny shapes, no, not unless round is funny. And then later on, how Evel's, oh, these are circular. When Gail's, everybody get down on the ground, nobody move. When there's that whole misunderstanding there. Well, which is it, young feller? You want I should freeze or get down on the ground? I mean to say, if I freeze, I can't rightly drop. And if I drop, I'm going to be in motion. That's a real theme through this whole movie is people not understanding each other. And that language, that that poetic language, because I know there's references in here to Flannery O'Connor, to William Faulkner, to John Steinbeck. I don't know if it's 
adapting that type of language. It's a more literary language than a spoken word language. It's not what you would hear when you're having a talk with somebody. Like you said, domicile rather than house or home. The only thing that I read, I think it was in the interviews that you sent, there was a book of interviews and they said that they wanted, they figured that the characters would have been informed by two things. One, probably raised around the church, so the Bible, and then also just like general magazines, just general popular reading. So they figured it was this mashup of high art, high language and really low language at the same time. Like Jugs Magazine? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I worked in a place that used to sell Jugs magazine. So when I saw that, it made me laugh. But even the music has that too. I mean, you know, it's one of the great scores ever. And it has this mix of like Beethoven, but played in a kind of almost Southwestern country kind of way. And then opera. And it's doing the same thing. It's kind of mashing together this sort of high art and low folk art and coming up with something new and special and kind of the best parts of both. And that's, in a way, what I feel like the language is doing, too. And that's what I mean about there's something elevating about the story and the characters in it. As much as it's funny, it's also kind of saying these people do live in a world where Beethoven is part of their subconscious world or, or opera or, you know, they hear. I mean, so some of these things is are in High's dreams and, and, you know, and he's hearing this music. So for me, there's something I like about it. And I may be reading in, but there's something about elevating the common man at the same time that it's poking fun at. And it's something that I think they do brilliantly well. And they do it over and over again. in A lot of movies is both mercilessly teasing and kind of really appreciating and loving people. High, low, all types, all, but they, they're one of the only filmmakers. And I think of the best a filmmaker that kind of does that, that thing simultaneously really well, where they're both tease and make fun of, people mercilessly and yet somehow you never feel like it's cruel and in the end you realize they really love their characters and that's really hard to do at the same time i mean i definitely feel there's a deep humanism in their work that they're willing to point out our foibles but really hugging us at the same time and going it's okay we understand <laughs> you know? the character that comes the closest to this pattern that we're talking about is probably the George Clooney character in Oh Brother, Where Out Thou? And with him, when he starts spouting out about the paterfamilias and just like using these highfalutin terms, there's also that notion of maybe he's not as smart as he thinks he is. Because you get Tim Blake Nelson and John Turturro, and they're not necessarily using that sort of high language. And I would say they're probably on the same playing field as him. You get Tim Blake Nelson, like, they loved him up and turned him into a horny toad. Talking about how they're prestidigitation or any of this kind of stuff. He's not using that level of language. So I think in that one, they are not necessarily making fun of Clooney, but Clooney is playing such a blowhard at times. And just this whole thing about his pomade and he's a Dapper Dan man and all this stuff. And of course, I'm thinking of pomade because of the pomade that's in this movie as well. And I just was really hoping that it was Dapper Dan was the pomade, but unfortunately it's not. There's our great things that carry over from one film to another, and you get these kind of running jokes. Like, I know a lot of people will be like, oh, look at High worked at Hudsucker Industries, and we're going to get Hudsucker later on. Look at the film before, look at Crime Wave that they did with Sam Raimi. That's all taking place at Hudsucker as well. So they love that term, man. And then Rob, I know before we started talking, you were talking about 
kidnapping and like how that's such a theme for these guys as well. When I look at all of their films, I think probably a good 75% of them have a kidnapping in the plot. So there's part of me that goes, do they have something they're working out? Is this like therapy? Did they have a family member who was kidnapped? Or were they just like going, no, it's just a really good like film noir plot device that you can use that you can play with. But there's part of me that goes, yeah, but to have it in 75% of your work, I could probably list off most of the films. I can't remember all of them, but almost seems like every single movie has a kidnapping. And it's like Blood Simple does. And that's one of the serious ones. And then goofy ones like this one and Big Lebowski. So it's it just keeps showing up. I want to say that Fargo was very close for them and that the whole idea of this kidnapping and stuff took place when they were younger. And that probably worked its way into a lot of what you're saying, using kidnappings. Because I think that whole... Because they say based on a true story, which of course is an absolute lie, but I think there are some aspects of that kidnapping that were true and that did take place around where they grew up. If anything, playing armchair psychologist, that's as close as I can think of as why are there so many kidnappings in so many of their movies. It's a damn good trope. And with this one, it's not even really a kidnapping so much. It's just outright theft that they, those who have so much should give to those who don't very socialist type of philosophy that we have here they got five they're fine nathan arizona probably well-to-do guy and it sounds like he and florence had to go through treatments for her to have these kids and that was probably very expensive as well so it's that whole thing of high and ed are not rich but yet nathan arizona's up on that hill that high and low type of thing just here this person is with five boys and we can't even have one so why don't we just take what the good lord can't give us yeah and looking at them looking at that couple though the way that they're staged and everything she is she looks like she walked out of the early 1900s like her hair's up she's got these really very particular clothing like a suffragette almost it's like school marmish what is the dynamic between these two but in terms of nathan arizona i absolutely love him and i'm sad to hear that he died relatively the actor died relatively quick after this film i think he made like one other thing he was supposed to actually from my understanding play the albert finney role in miller's crossing but he's just so amazing in here and i love that character and again a quotable piece like i'll say to people chairs you got a dinette set no chairs you got dick Ask my wife, she got more sense. And another character who we, on the surface, is a schmuck, he's greedy, he's disconnected. And by the end, he's wonderful. And that's that same thing that they do, where like, you know, he's like, oh, he's the rich guy, and he's the shallow guy. And and then by the end of the film, you really do kind of love him. And there's a real heart within all of his trappings. All the trappings are still there. But, you know, he lets them go, and he is very empathetic and he tells them to stay together. And, you know, that's that thing where they just, you know, the humanity keeps finding a way to come out underneath everybody's traffic. Everybody's got them, but then the good stuff kind of sneaks out in spite of themselves. I felt very happy. I, I once met a friend of a friend named Scott Huffhines and I kept asking him, do you call yourself unpainted Huffhines? And he's like, no, do you think that people would get it? I was like, yeah, I think they would. And then from then on, he went as Scott, unpainted Huffine. So I feel very happy about that. 
going back a little bit to the movie, because we're just jumping all over the place here because it's tough to talk about comedy. It's really tough to talk about comedy. This is not just jokes for jokes sakes. There is a whole lot of stuff going on in here. And I love just the filmmaking prowess when you come to that pre-credit sequence. The guy who's mopping the floor and every time High comes back to prison, he has moved a little bit. Or the counseling sessions that they're having and you get to see the different people that are in jail with them. Why do you use the word trapped? Huh? Why do you say you feel trapped in a man's body? Well, sometimes I get the menstrual cramps real hard. That guy is overdubbed. It's William Preston Robertson doing that voice. And just that they used him in so many movies. Like, even when, I think in Hudsucker Proxy, he just has one line where he goes, buzz. And he's got that huge, deep voice. We're talking about, like, economics and stuff and the way that at the end of every week he's got a paycheck. And that woman smoking that cigarette. The job was a lot like prison. Except Ed was waiting at the end of every day and a paycheck at the end of every week. Government do take a bite, don't you? Talking about that Reaganomics and all of that stuff that's in here. I tried to stand up and fly straight, but it wasn't easy with that bitch Reagan in the White House. I don't know. They say he's a decent man, so maybe his advisors are confused. As a kid who grew up working poor during that era with a dad who worked in a factory, not <laughs> what they show in the film, I think that was another element to this movie that kind of related to me because I didn't grow up with means and I knew people like to mean obviously not as far out. So that's where I think the connection came from for me. It's like very much is a working class film, but in that way, it's a blown out version, but it still has that heart of these people are trying to scrape by and make it happen for them. When they all have their dreams and I love Keith, you mentioned before about the dreams and just that high, I don't know if he's necessarily controlling things with his dreams, but he definitely seems to have some sort of influence or things are being influenced by his dreams. Just that, I mean, he pretty much manifests Lenny Smalls, just that after he does this horrible thing of kidnapping this child or taking this child, I should say, because they don't ask for a ransom, that he manifests this lone horseman of the apocalypse the warthog from hell as flannery o'connor would say and ed says later on and i just love that and that they have that connection of that woody woodpecker tattoo and just that they seem to be coming from the same place that lenny smalls has that tattoo my mama didn't love me when he's got the baby shoes and stuff and you're like okay are those his baby shoes or are those like a trophy from another baby that he's stolen. And I love that you get these baby noises so often when you see him out on screen, like when he's camped out above McDonough Place looking down and you've got like crying of the baby when you see him. Again, the sound is wonderful in this. I think it's alluded to in the conversation with Nathan Arizona that maybe he was the baby that was sold to someone at some point. $30,000 he fetched on the open market. As for that Roadrunner tattoo, that has always been something that throughout my watching of the film, I was like, because I knew that image. I knew that image because my dad used to work on cars and my dad had a 1970 Chevy Nova and he had one of those like in the back window. 
And it was this company that made like carburetors and things like that for cars. So I knew that image ever since I was a little kid. And so when I saw that they had it, I was like, okay, they both have this thing. That, that's weird. But it was only just recently, and I sent this link to you before we recorded a few days ago, that I guess there is a gangs in prison called the Peckerwoods that have Woody Woodpecker tattoos that are like white supremacist gangs in prisons. I go, wow, that that got dark real quick. I didn't realize that like high could have been initiated into some white Aryan nations kind of thing in prison and that they're like brothers of a fraternity. And that's why in the end, when he pulls the grenade, he says, sorry, because he's sorry he did that to a fellow member of the same fraternity. I found that video interesting. There were some good parts to it. There are things that when High is pulling one of the Arizona quints from under the crib, and then you get that same shot repeated when Lenny is pulling High out from underneath a car and just like pointing some of those things out. I was like, okay, yeah, that's cool. Or like when he dreams about Lenny and that he's moving his head back and forth to the right, to the left, and it's very similar to what happens later on when Lenny is beating him and his head is going back and forth to the right, to the left. I thought that was good. I don't necessarily buy High as a white supremacist and that he's really annoyed. The only African-American, actually, there's two African-Americans because there's the guy who's got the menstrual cramps, but there's also his cellmate. And I don't see him being annoyed with his cellmate because he's black. I just see him being annoyed with his cellmate because it sounds like he tells the same stories about crawdads all the time. And when there was no meat, we ate fowl. And there was no fowl, we ate crawdads. When there was no crawdad to be found, we ate sand. You ate what? We ate sand. You ate sand? That's right. And I don't think I would believe that they ate sand either. But also the use of visuals, and I didn't pick up on this until years later, is the scene where he, I think it's in the dream, where he visualizes her, Florence, Arizona, going into the bedroom and the baby's not there where the camera goes from the ground over the car, up the ladder, into the bedroom, right into her face. That is a visual lift out of Evil Dead, which, of course, Joel Cohen was a co-editor on Evil Dead. So I love that little nod that they did to to Sam, their friend, that if you're a fan of both films, you go, no, okay. Yeah, they use shaky cam like crazy in this. In backward shots, I love good backwards acting, which I know Bruce Campbell can do. And speaking of Bruce Campbell, I always felt he should have been Glenn. I love the actor that played Glenn, but there were certain line deliveries that he gives where I'm just like, man, Bruce Campbell could have killed that line delivery. Oh, yeah. And just that like group of friends with like, Ramey and Tapert and you've got the, the Coen brothers and then Holly Hunter was one of their roommates for a little while. I remember hearing commentary on the evil dead i think the original evil dead disc about that and that they didn't cast her in blood simple so they said okay we need to write this character and that she was partially responsible for what this movie ended up being having that strong female character in here was pretty important and that was the thing that i forgot to mention up the front was when i made that film the little vampire film the guy who wrote it and produced it with me who's in it He's in Crime Wave. So there's another kid. <laughs> he was a child actor. And if you've ever seen Crime Wave, 
he's the kid who's in the elevator who's pushing the buttons and annoying people and then they toss him out of the elevator i think brian james tosses him so he's got this little cameo bit in there when i think he was like eight or nine years old so it's funny like it all comes full circle in that way that video that you sent too i never really realized that high's car is there when he visualizes florence coming in and the camera's going over the one car that his car is still in the driveway and that he left the ladder up there. I guess you just do that if you're a criminal, but I love that whole thing. And just the use of the shaky cam and freaking Barry Sonnefeld when he was strictly DPing at this point, just doing beautiful work. And I love, and I hope Keith, that you appreciated this one. He would always sneak in Kubrick references. So in the bathroom, you've got yep. P-O-E-O-P-E. <laughs> so great. I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. One of the things I love about the Coens is their movies are so full of little throwaway nods to their other films, friends' films, people they admire, you know, classical fiction. I mean, and it's not always that meaningful. I, I do think you get into danger with them because people can overanalyze it and start, you know, I mean, that's I kind of had mixed things with the video too because I started to feel like, okay, you're really trying to tie this all together as opposed to the fact that I think they're just having fun with symbols and symbolism and all. I don't think it always necessarily all ties up to a grand thing. They're just kind of like... Yes, I could see, for example, with the O-P-E-P-O-E, which is from Dr. Strangelove in the bathroom, you know, first of all, it's a nod, but also, yes, it's two films taking place in crazy worlds where nothing makes sense. Like, you know, there's a certain amount of it that that I think you can say, yes, there was a meaning. But I, I could also imagine reading some film articles somewhere saying, well, clearly they were saying that the apocalypse is coming and it's the same as the apocalypse. It's like, there's a certain one, it's like, no, really, I think they're having more fun than that. Someone wasn't denied the essence. That's what happened. So there you go. I'm trying to remember the name of that critic who always reviews the Coen Brothers movies, and he will even do introductions on their DVDs. Do you guys remember who I'm talking about? He's completely made up whole cloth by them. Oh, yes. It's not Roderick James, because that's the editor. The editor that was made up. Yeah. Um, no, it was, uh, and he's on the, yeah, it's the, it's on the Blood Simple disc. He does the introduction. Welcome, viewers, to this special collector's edition of Blood Simple, Forever Young. My name is Kenneth Loring, Artistic Director for Forever Young Film Restoration, and I'll be talking you enthusiasts, or shall we say, aficionados, through some of the technical aspects of the filmmaking here, even as the scenes under discussion unfold. But um, more on myself later during the slower parts of the movie. For now, let's admire some of these so-called plate shots, that is, um, shots that were filmed as background for titles. Although here, as you see, there are actually no titles, so they, they aren't, in fact, plate shots, but simply, um, well, shots, I suppose you'd call them. One of the movies actually won Best Editing, and they were like, oh, how the hell are we going to get Roderick James up here? Well, very few filmmakers seem to have the fun with in the films, but also around the making of the films and their whole, I mean... They act, they do, they keep, they have a playfulness that is just great. And I think is too missing from a lot of filmmaking and they, their films are playful and their approach to filmmaking seems playful. And I, I think it, it's great. I always took the whole Woody Woodpecker thing to be more that this was a cartoon. 
and that we were living in a cartoon world and Kai's hair is very Woody Woodpecker-esque and apparently it gets higher and higher as he gets more stressed. And I was figured if Lenny comes from high, that's why he's got the tattoo. That's as much stock as I put in that. I, I wasn't yeah, thinking that he had joined the Peckerwoods. In the video, did they say the Peckerwoods actually have Woody Woodpecker tattoos? Or did they just were they making the connection between Peckerwoods and Woodpecker and because I could see the Coen brothers hearing, oh, there's a gang called the Peckerwoods and thinking it's really funny and doing a riff on it called, you know, Wood with Woodpecker. I don't know that they would be literally trying to make a point about I being a white supremacist, which is not referenced or part of this. I mean, it's not like they're as filmmakers, they're, they're not scared of having their characters be really fucked up and, you know, awful. And, you know, they would go there if they wanted to go there. So I think trying to make a hidden statement that I is actually a white supremacist just doesn't seem like they're filmmaking and i didn't remember that though that the real peckerwoods actually did the woodpecker tattoos uh, and maybe i'm wrong but it appeared to be from what he was showing the thing that i eventually clicked for me later was and this was in the video that i thought was interesting because i hadn't made that connection before is that in a way small's character represents his future that basically if he doesn't get on the path and if he keeps doing what he's doing he's going to turn into a criminal, like a really bad criminal, and he'll be alone, and he'll have nothing, and he'll just be this lone man by himself, miserable. Because we can't say that Small seems like a nice guy because he has no friends. So it appears that character is really a mirrored, twisted, darker version of where High could end up, and that the tattoo is a visual. It's hard to imagine, though, that that High could ever be that guy. I mean, High doesn't even load his gun. I mean, you know. I mean, you got the feeling it's Smalls to me. Smalls to me seems like he was a guy who grew up. He was given away as a baby, you know, for $30,000. He's a creature without a soul. And I just feel like even if High has fears of that in himself, he has clearly so has a soul. And see, for me, I don't think he says a sorry, the thing about sorry because they're brothers. He's never hurt anybody before. I think he's so sorry because he's, I mean, he's been a career criminal who's never loaded his gun. He's never hurt anyone. He's he's really as harmless as you could be and be a criminal. I mean, the only person he ever does any harm to is Glenn, who he punches for saying, I want to swap with your your wife, but he just punches the guy. He doesn't, you know, and, but he's a very harmless guy and a sweet guy. So I guess it's hard for me to imagine him ever becoming small, even if he's afraid. I could see that being his nightmare of himself, but I don't think that's really who he is. And I do think that... He, he says sorry because he's for the first time he blows up. He blows up the worst human being in the world. And even then he's so sweet that on some level he's like, oh, I really don't want to hurt somebody, even if you're going to kill me if I don't. And I think that's why we love him, no matter how much of a criminal he is, because he's a really good soul who's just doesn't know how to make sense of the world. And I love that mirroring, too, with punching Glenn and that great edit. So he has to walk up to Glenn. He punched Glenn so hard that he's six meters away <laughs> and then you get that mirroring later on with lenny where he punches high and then has to walk up to get to high because he punched him so far i love when they do that kind of stuff and then yeah just those great visual jokes and they're like leave mr mcdonough's car alone and then that cut to them all just beating the car <laughs> it's just so loud and you get i watched it today with headphones on and just the sound of the children just ever present in that whole scene. It's just so disrupting. Buford over there writing on the walls. 
Yeah. And the whole, on account of something went wrong with my semen. Now, I know that, I think it's Joel, they adopted Joel and Francis McDormand. They adopted children. So I always wondered if there was some connection to the fact of, oh, we can't have kids on our own kind of thing, that maybe that was another piece in here. But I have no way to know that. I haven't read anything that said that. No, you're absolutely right. Because I was reading about that he had trouble adopting and that this was a reference to that. So yeah, you're totally right on the money with that. So yeah, something went wrong with his semen as well. But speaking of Francis McDormand, Blood Simple, she's so good in a dramatic role. And then in here, she's off the chain. I'm just like, wow. And this is before really I knew who she was because I had seen this. And then when I was in high school, Fargo came out and I loved Fargo where everybody was like, oh my God. And ever since she's been doing great work, the last thing I saw was actually the Macbeth that Joel did by himself. And I thought she was phenomenal in there because Macbeth is one of my favorites. But like her line deliveries in here. And the chemistry between her and Holly Hunter. Then there's the diphtheria tetanus, what they call the diptet. You got to get them diptet boosters yearly or else he'll develop lockjaw and that vision. Then there's the smallpox vaccine, chicken pox, and measles. And if your kid's anything like ours, you're going to have to get all those shots yourself first before he'll ever take them. <laughs> Who's your pediatrician anyway? We ain't exactly fixed on one yet. Have we, hi? No, I guess we don't have one yet. Jesus, well, you got to have one. you got to have one this instant. Yeah, well, what if the baby gets sick, honey? Even if he don't get sick, he's got to have his dip tat. He's got to have his dip tat, honey. You started his bank accounts yet? Have we done that, honey? we got to do that, honey. What's that for, Dot? That there's for his orthodonture and his university. Now, you soak his thumb in iodine, and you might get by without the orthodonture, and won't knock a thing off the university. Be <laughs> right! You take that diaper off your head. You put it back onto your sister. Anyway, you probably got the life insurance all squared away. Have we done that yet, honey? Got to do that, hi. Eddie here's got our hands full of this little angel. Yes, ma'am. What would Ed and Little Angel do if the truck came along, splattered your brains all over the interstate? Where would you be then? Yeah, honey, what if you get run over? Or he got carried off by a Twister? And then Evel later on, well, did he get his dip tit? I don't have kids, so I don't know anyone who has children if they run into people like this, where it's, oh, you have a kid now. Let me impart my wisdom to you. Let me tell you all of these things. And I just love the fact that, like, every time someone takes Nathan, they got to grab the Dr. Spock book. You have to get the Dr. Spock book, the instruction manual. The instruction manual, yeah. Yeah. And they have to rename the baby, too. Each time somebody tries to take them, it becomes Gail Jr., Neville Ju- Evel Jr., Hi Jr. Guess we'll be calling him Glenn Jr. But they don't even know if, for sure if that's Nathan Jr. I think that's Nathan Jr., as Dad says. <laughs> but he doesn't even know for sure which one he is. Having all of these couples as examples, having Dot and Glenn, and then having Evel and Gail Snokes, William Forsythe, you talk about how you didn't recognize Frances McDormand. She's got that great, horrible wig on and just the over makeup and all this stuff. William Forsythe, people will tell you that he's not in this movie because after this, he grows this badass mustache. Start, he starts pitching his voice down about an octave or more and just becomes this like badass investigator, serial killer, murderer type of guy where you're just like, really? That's sweet little gay. <laughs> the only other movie that I remember him as a character that I really liked as a kid, I haven't seen it since, 
is he we played flat top in Dick Tracy. And I really liked like his character work there. And then I liked him in here. And then I've seen him in the more crime film stuff that came out and that kind of neo-noir stuff in the 90s. I think he was in Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead or something. He was in that. But I've always really liked him. But like I said, this character, this type of performance, it's like I've never seen him do anything like this since. No, he's so good. And I'm sorry, I called him Gil. He's actually Evel. I don't want the tweets to be coming at me because I'm sure there are a lot of Evel fans out there. But then this was also the movie where the Coens started to work with John Goodman. And to this day, I don't know if he was in Macbeth, but he sure has been in a lot of Coen Brothers movies, both the serious ones and the comedies. And my God, he is just so good. I just love these guys. And I love to talk about communication again. I love when they break out of prison and they just are screaming. It just And then later on, when they misplace Nathan Jr., they're screaming again. There's no communication whatsoever. It's just these guttural screams that they're just laying out to us and pounding on the roof of the car. Or even when they're like doing their hair at the gas station, they turn to each other and they start screaming at each other. They say, but speaking of screaming, like their entry into the film after that group session is like a birth. Like they're coming out of the ground. They're being birthed. And then I think they did this on purpose with them. It's probably planned. But you'll notice that out of the two, I would say that Evel is IQ's pitch down a little bit. And he's reach birth. Like he he's born by his leg. Like he doesn't come out head first. He comes out by his feet. So therefore, of course, he might be a little more twisted, I guess, is what they think. And just the little things that he does, yeah. Oh, good cereal flakes, Miss Madonna. Oh, just so many good lines. And yeah, and then, of course, the star of the show, just Nicolas Cage. What a performance. There's so many little things in here, like incredible chase scene that happens. And just that the Coens just have to keep adding to it and adding to it. Once the dogs show up, it's just, holy cow, what the... And when he goes into the grocery store, and suddenly the music changes to a Muzak version of the Raising Arizona theme. But I love that moment when the guy that is working at the grocery store is using a shotgun. And at one point, High's running down the lane and comes to the end and sees that guy with the shotgun. Just that look on Nick Cage's face. Just this kind of like little, like, why is this happening to me kind of thing. And he doesn't seem like he's put out. He just turns around, puts that Huggies container under the other arm and starts running back as this guy's just shooting wildly in in the store not to be outdone by the cops though that just love to shoot constantly (laughs) and when the one cop falls out of his own cop car at the convenience store that never fails to amuse me i also love the the old man in the truck where he stops him and he's son you got a panty on your head And then when they stop and they go through the window because there's no window in the truck, and then he gets up and runs into the house. Everybody runs through the house and the dogs go through the house and the family's just sitting there watching TV. That's just... They're watching TV and there's a Nathan Arizona commercial on the TV. And I love when he runs into that house and he turns and says thank you to the guy before he (laughs) runs in the house. Just all those little lines that they're doing. Just the little, like, sometimes ADR stuff that they occasionally stick in. That one character who's completely ADR. Don't forget the bouquet, Ed. 
just I love that they have these things. Well, and also what they caught, I mean, the whole gun craziness thing, I mean, still very much America, but they caught it really early. This idea that the guy in the store just has his shotgun ready to go and it's like, ooh, an excuse to use it. Again, it's always fun, but there's something about the violence of America that the film really captures. And again, that's why I think Pi sticks out because he's so not a violent guy in the end. And really, he's surrounded by people who are more violent. And there's a, it's a whole country that's ready to use their guns and looks forward to it. It's like, oh, I get to shoot at somebody. Yay. And he's like the one guy whose gun is never loaded, which I think is really, really sort of interesting because it's, it's everybody has a gun. It's weird. His gun's not loaded, but he's shooting blanks. Or Ed's insides truly are a rocky place where his seed can find no purchase. Rob, you're talking about quotable lines. There are so many things that I say from this movie all the time. I love when Ed is so mad at High about allowing the Snopes brothers to be there. And High does that whole thing. Well, now, honey, you got to have a little charity. You know, an Arab land. Sit out of play. Just his delivery. Just the pauses and... When he goes low, and I am sad, it sounds like the Coens didn't get along with Nick Cage as well as they could have. It's not John Goodman or Clooney or who's another one that they work with, Jeff Bridges. It's not like that type of relationship, Sibushemi. Unfortunately, they didn't get along real well, so that's why Nick Cage hasn't been back in another one of these movies. But my God, it feels like real lightning in a bottle to have him at that point in his career, especially where he was just balls to the wall. He hasn't really ever slowed down, of course, but some performances are better than others. This one is right there at the top for me. And then the Coen brothers, this is not a sophomore slump, ladies and gentlemen, this is kicking their career into a whole different gear. Yes. I love blood simple as well, but coming off of that into this, I can see where we really would have turned some people off and, I definitely read a lot of those reviews as well, but my goodness, does this movie still hold a special place in my heart. The other aspect that I think really works for me is that their dramatic films and especially their absurdist ones really have this lived in field. There's a real quality to the universe that they build, and it's even just through small things. But like I said, with this film, so out there and not realistic but it still feels so authentic in a way. And I think that anyone who would try to make a comedy would probably play it more safe and go, we're just playing in contemporary time. We're just playing in the way people speak and the things that they're concerned about. Most people would never try to do this high wire act of what it is that they do in this film in that way. You're talking about genre conventions and kidnapping being a great trope for crime films. It feels like we have seen parts of this movie in other movies since then, and it's nowhere near this outrageousness. Okay, maybe Jason Siegel starred in a movie that was something like this, but just that, that insanity. And I love that they had a, a rule on set, which was everything had to be wacky. Hey, Barry, is this shot going to be wacky? And <laughs> just really trying to go all out with that. It's Every shot counts, man. Everything. And these guys coming from an ed- editing background, this thing is edited to within an inch of its life. It is so tight. There's nothing that's wasted in this. And it's almost unfair that they give us this amazing pre-credit sequence because after that, 
you can't keep that pace up. If you were to start the movie, like when the credits start, of course, you're missing out on all the backstory and where we're at with this. But the movie that comes after that is really, again, very tightly edited, moves at a pretty darn good pace, but it doesn't move at that same pace as the rest of the movie. But it's nice. It gives you a little bit of a breather when you get to that kidnapping scene. You're just like, ah, okay, <laughs> let's enjoy watching these babies terrorize Nicolas Cage for a little while. I actually looked at the opening. I wanted to see how they wrote the opening and the script that you had, and it's all there. And it was amazing because I figured that, oh, it's voiced over, so maybe they added that in later or things like that. But no, it was very meticulous, and they knew exactly what they were visualizing to do it. And I can't think of anyone who's done like a big sequence like that kind of brings you in that way, especially for a comedy. It's usually it's set up in a meat cute or something. And then you're off for the next 80 minutes after that or something. That first 11 minutes could be a full movie in somebody else's hands. And just the weirdness at that time, particularly we've gotten more used to the convention now of credits coming in at strange times, but it was very odd at that point in movie making to have the credits start like 12 minutes into the movie. I mean, you're basically so far into the film when that first sequence ends and the title comes up. And that was, as I remember, at least very kind of bold for the time because it was, you know, things tended to be very, you know, normal. You'd start with the credits or there'd be one little teaser minute or two and you'd add the credits. And this was like, you're way into the movie. It's almost like, forgot we didn't see credits. And you're in the middle of the story and then the credits sort of interrupt. And it's like, oh, right, credit. We're watching a movie. We're, it's kind of, it was just a, I just remember, that was a very unusual and cool thing to do at that time. I mean, now I feel like other people have done it, but it, back then, I can't think of any other films that had that structure. Yeah, I think the closest you're going to get is like a James Bond film, but that's still, like you said, three minutes tops before the credits start for that, not 11 minutes, not this continuous music that starts. I think like as soon as you see High Walk onto the screen and start to talk, you hear that strum of the banjo, and we're off to the races. And then, yeah, when those credits come up, and you, you get that amazing yodeling that goes with it, all right, we are watching something very special here. And what's cool is it's edited so tight, and, and it moves really well, but it doesn't feel rushed. I'm not a fan of movies that feel like they're rushing. And this movie is, again, in the same way that they do a remarkable thing of kind of making funny characters and loving them, and honoring them at this... They like they edit really tight and it moves really fast and but I never feel like oh we're rushing through this I never feel like oh we're just trying to get to the next thing it always feels very deliberate even though it's very quick and that's really hard you don't see that often because when you go at that pace it usually feels like you're missing things it usually feels like you're jumping over stuff and 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 somehow as filmmakers they know how to make it so full that it doesn't feel like you're being cheated or you're being rushed through the story. And that's tough. And that's part that I wonder how much of that previous work, like when you talk about Joel's work as an editor before he became director, that he was able to go, okay, I know how to do this. Much the same way. I think there might be a corollary in that way with Martin Scorsese because he was editing before he really got into his directing career and really understanding how to make those edits, how to use the pacing, how to use the music, how to do all of those things. I think 
sometimes directors come in and they're just like, I have a really good visual sense or really, I can write a script and have a very good sense of character and dialogue. But sometimes that pacing, like you were saying, that's a, a special thing unto itself. And you're talking about the script and just how tight the script is. And Keith, feel free to call bullshit on this, but this is a story I heard a long time ago about the Coen brothers. I might use the wrong terminology, so you might need to correct me on this one. I think it was the Big Lebowski and Jeff Bridges was talking to John Goodman and he was so confused because there were no, I think they were calling them blue pages in this, that every night when you're an actor, you get pages slid under the door and then, oh, now I have to learn the lines again or learn new lines for the next morning. And he's like, there's no blue pages. And Goodman's like, no, this is the Coen brothers. There are no blue pages. What you read, what you signed on to is the script that we are shooting. There's no deviation from this. And I think that is unusual. I mean, that, I mean, it's not bullshit. Most movies, whether they're commercial movies or even auteur films, most, most, you know, they're you people rewrite as the film's being shot. They see something an actor is doing and they want more of it or less of it or whatever they, you know, something. And it's a rare thing to write a script and go, that's the story we're telling. I don't think they're the only people that do it, but I, they do have the reputation that they don't rewrite. They very rarely rewrite. And if they do, it's minimal, but I'm sure. Yeah, it, it's, but again, that goes back to the poetry they write. I mean, they write their films are, it's funny because they're so visual and we think of them as these amazing visual artists, but they're also really written. They're beautifully written pieces. The dialogue is thoughtful and poetic and the words are specific. And, you know, every generation's got a few people like that, Harold Pinter, uh, Dennis Potter, uh, you know, there, there are writers that write with just beautiful use of language and deliberate use of language. And I think the Coens don't get enough credit for that. They get credit, people acknowledge it, but because their visual style is so fun and, and free and crazy seeming, people forget how amazing their words are. And and yeah, I imagine you get that script and that's the script. And that's what it is what I've I've heard. I, I didn't know that story, but I've heard similar stories about how little they change things and, and how much it takes to get them to change anything during production. Like that's something they really don't like to do. I mean, the other element of this is because they give us that open. And then we have those dream sequences that the ending can work the way that it does. And I think that's the place where we're talking about like humanity again, where it's going, there is redemption, that there is, yeah, you're all goofballs, but we know that your heart's in the right place. We know you're trying to do the right thing. And I always liked the ending. I thought the ending was really well done. Yeah. For me, the ending makes the film. I mean, to me the ending takes the film to another level because I, I find it so moving that I, I get choked up. I mean, I, you know, here's this completely cartoon, over-the-top, silly film, and the last five minutes makes you want to cry every time I see it. And it's so beautiful because you don't imagine a film like that's going to go there. You don't, this kind of film should end on a big, wacky final joke, and that's the end of the movie. And instead, it ends on a really deep consideration of, family and meaning and connection and generations and love and super heartfelt. I mean, by all rights, shouldn't work. It should feel like, whoa, whoa, this is a different movie. You can't put that. And they just, it's so beautiful. It just comes right out of everything we watch. And you realize how much it's been laid in. I mean, you couldn't just plop that on. You know, on a Hollywood film, that I could see something saying, well, put some, put some heartfeltness in the end there. And it would just feel like that. And here you realize how brilliantly they have woven through this completely silly movie 
the strains that will lead you to somewhere that really is a deep embrace of humanity and love and caring and family and that we grow old and die, but the next generation takes that all on. And I mean, it's, it's gorgeous. And it, and it's, it's, you know, that belong could be in any drama and it's remarkable because it, it on paper would be impossible to do. And yet they do it. We're talking about the editing background of Joel and how that adds in. But I wonder if you guys think that this is where the philosophy major Ethan comes in, where he's looking at philosophy and humanity and man grappling with truth and everything that is the human existence and then plowing that into the films. Because I think that's another kind of auteur piece that runs through their thing is always these existential questions, always these questions of humanity that, that run through all of their films freely. That's a real one-two punch too, because you get that dream sequence, but even before that you get the confrontation between Nathan and then High and Ed. And like you were saying before, he could be a real jerk about things, but instead he shows us that humanity that we didn't necessarily see when he was talking about how Miles is so dumb and that if a froghead wins, it wouldn't bump its ass to happen. And he's just so top of things, you know, why wake the security guard kind of thing. And then here he's just so nice to them. Of course, he's still cheap. He's trying to use a line of credit at his stores instead of actually giving a reward. But when he realizes who they are and he does that whole thing about keep trying and him and you really get the feeling there how much he loves Florence how he knows that he's blessed to have all these kids and that he tells Hyde to sleep on it. And I love when he's just like sleep on it because we know with sleep in this movie comes dreams and we get that great montage too of him dreaming of high dreaming and then all of the other people dreaming the Snopes brothers going back to jail, just getting all of these little threads tied up before we go into that sequence, which just has I think that's three different parts to it as well. There's the whole thing of Nathan opening up the present and then showing him later on winning the football game. And that whole, like, now we go deeper, farther into the future where we don't know anything. And it may not be Arizona, it may be Utah. And I love that. We have a little button on there, but it's not that, like you were saying, sprinkle heartfeltness on there. There's just a little tiny joke at the end after you get that amazing, like, Norman Rockwell pull out across the table with all the food and all the family. And then that the old couple that we never see their faces and just hunched over and looking at how wonderful the life has turned out to be. Does choke me up as well. And what's funny is I actually think the little bits of humor that are in there, whether it's Nathan still trying to be cheap or the very that wonderful last line about Utah, are again part of what make it work. If they'd gotten completely serious, if they dropped the sense of humor, then it would be suddenly like, oh, wait a minute, this is another movie. But what the, the line, and it is, wait, talk about threading a needle. They keep just enough of the absurdity and the humor that you're in the same movie. It's just that same movie now is super moving and super deep, but it's still the movie you've been watching. And, you know, for anybody who's ever made a movie or written a book or it, whatever you've done, I mean, you know how hard that is. I mean, that's like, that's really hard to like introduce an entire new level to something right at the end. 
but not make it feel divorced from what you've been. I mean, that is, that's like a, some kind of acrobatic feat and, and they do it so easily that it doesn't, I think you don't realize how tough that would be, but that could have gone south about 85,000 ways. And boy, they make it just without a ripple. Because I know at one point when he's dreaming, the music that is in his dream eventually becomes diegetic with Ed singing that that horrific lullaby. <laughs> it's a murder ballad, actually. I looked it up. Yeah, it's Rose Connolly is the name of the song. Yeah. And then you, I love that. It's like this beautiful music in his dream. And then you hear and she's singing that to this little baby. And I'm like, okay, I guess that works. You have a pleasant song, but the lyrics are pretty horrific. And I can't remember if they use that again when High is dreaming in the future. Well, I think that's the theme that musically is the theme that runs with the whole piece. And that's what's so interesting because it's a beautiful piece of music. And then she sings it and it really is beautiful and it's really horrifying. And again, it's that it's that dichotomy that they're just all through all their films. But this one in particular, everything's a dichotomy. Everything is beautiful and ugly and hysterically funny and really real. And, you know, that that's another. And that one seems very intentional. It's a really gorgeous melody. And even when she's singing it, the first few lines you hear are not that horrific. It kind of takes a bit to realize, what is she singing? But of course, that's very much part of the of tradition with kids. And I mean, think about me, nursery rhymes are really dark. I mean, Rockabye Baby, Down Will Come Cradle Baby. I mean, nursery rhymes are like full of death and loss and injury. And, and that's a really interesting thing about human beings. And I think their films kind of capture that. But there's something about that weird counterpoint that we all seem to be drawn to without even being aware of it. I also took it like how we were talking about the Beethoven piece and how it's done with what we would consider folk instrument. Murder ballads would have been normal to people from Appalachia or something like that who probably would have moved west during the Dust Bowl or something. And they brought these old folk songs with them. So to me, it is that mashup of high culture, low culture. And it's like I said, it still cracks me up talking about that chase where he goes into the grocery store and it becomes a music version like that just is perfect you know <laughs> that was one thing that my friend pointed out to me as we were watching and i was just like wow that is really clever it was like the long goodbye and just all the different versions of the long goodbye song that john williams wrote and how they just will i think in there it's the long goodbye music version when philip marlowe goes in to buy cat food for his cat at three in the morning or whatever. And then he goes up and he writes a check for 69 cents. Oh, wait, no, I'm thinking of another detective movie that these guys worked on. It's so funny that I went and saw, I think Big Lebowski's having its 25th anniversary this year. And I just went to see a screening and I took my in-laws and they don't really care for swearing. So I don't think that they necessarily had a great time watching this. And then it's so funny to watch Lebowski, then you come back to this, and this is basically like a kid's film compared to Lebowski. It's one of those where I'm like, yeah, I could probably show this to like a 10, 12 year old with no problems. It does get violent at times, but it's almost always cartoonish violence, like when he is riding on John Goodman's back and pulling at his face and stuff. Or I love that little detail when High reaches up to like pound on him and he scrapes his. And across the popcorn ceiling. <laughs> Just all those little things. Those amazing camera angles on Goodman. 
and Cage as they're flying around and Cage's feet going around destroying that entire trailer and how thin the wall is when it gets thrown through the wall. <laughs> There's not one moment of this movie where I'm just like, oh yeah, this would, this is the one sour note. I don't think there are any sour notes to this film. No, it's, yeah, one of my favorites. It's so good. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with an interview with Joseph McBride, author of The Whole Dern Human Comedy, Life According to the Coen Brothers. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Hello, this is Will, a writer of three films plus a Christmas special. And this is Kevin, a writer of one and a bit films and three and a bit episodes of TV. Okay. We're screenwriters by day, podcasters by night. Yeah, okay, Batman. <laughs> and we're the hosts of The Best Bits, a show where each episode we pick our favourite film scenes from randomly selected, weirdly specific themes. Such as best fight scene, best sex scene, and best Tom Cruise running scene. Why should I know these things? Do you know them? And we have the world's first podcasting AI to keep us on the straight and narrow. Say hello, Bodbot. Hello. So, if you're looking for another film podcast to subscribe to, why not check us out? The Best Bits with Will Collins and Kevin Lehan. And Podbot. Yeah, it's good crack. <laughs> Irish crack. So if you want legal crack, subscribe to Best Bits Podcast. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Professor McBride, always great having you on the show. Thank you so much for being here today. We've talked a little bit before, we've talked a lot of it about some of the other books that you've written over your illustrious career. Most of the time, your subjects seem to be dead. I know there's few living people out there. Of course, Mr. Spielberg is one of them, but I was very surprised when you put out a book about the Coen brothers. I've written largely about people from the golden age of Hollywood, as we call it, John Ford. Orson Welles, Howard Hawks, etc. Billy Wilder, I wrote a book on Billy Wilder, Dancing on the Edge, which came out in 2021, and the Coen Brothers book came out soon after that, Holder in Human Comedy, Life According to the Coen Brothers. In some ways, it's easier to write about a dead subject because they don't give you a hard time. I wrote a biography of Frank Capra, and I had a lot of trouble in a way, it was great having him around to interview for a year, and he was cooperative to some extent, but then I ran into great opposition. He and his family and some his archivist, Janine Basinger, tried to thwart the book, stop the book, censor the book. I wrote a whole book about that called, Frankly, Unmasking Frank Capra. But Spielberg actually was one of the more cooperative people. He wouldn't give me an interview. He People said he was saving it for his autobiography. We'll see if he ever does that, but he won't cooperate with unauthorized biographies, which is the only kind I will write. But he told his staff told people when they called and said, should I talk to McBride? They were told I was kosher, which was really nice and open doors. He did tell his mother not to talk to me. <laughs> I think your mother knows all the really bad stories about you. But I talked to her and she was very charming. And she said, I've been told not to talk to you. And I said, by whom? And she said, the gods told me. I did interview his father, with whom nobody had interviewed, and he was just wonderful and fascinating. And I got to him before Stephen found out I was talking to him. And But his mother had been interviewed a lot. I was able to find a lot of great quotes from her. But the Coen brothers, yeah, I like to write about people I care about in the current film scene. I think my favorite current directors are Spielberg and the Coen brothers. And I see the Coen brothers as the sons of Billy Wilder, I call them. 
if Billy Wilder were making films today, I think he would make films that are somewhat similar to the Coen Brothers films, although they have their own wacky style that's more avant-garde than his style, which is more classical. They're great satirists, and they also deal with various genres, romantic comedy, and Wilder was eclectic in his choice of material. He did dramas, he did comedies, different kinds of films, and the Coens do that to some extent. No Country for Old Men is a very dark drama with darkly comedic overtones, but it's not a farcical comedy like some of the films, although it has similar elements to films that they do about kidnapping and they have what they call their League of Morons, as John Malkovich puts it in Burn After Reading, which is one of their underrated films. They love people who are morons. And I used to think didn't like comedies about stupid people. For example, Sugarland Express, Spielberg's early film. The first time I saw it a long time ago, it bothered me because the two characters are pretty dumb and they get themselves into a lot of trouble. But now I see it as a tragedy and it's very compassionate. It's a really good film. And the Coen brothers, they treat people who do really stupid things and they're pretty ignorant, dumb people in some ways, but they love their characters. They adore their characters. And, and one of them said, Gee, we create all these people, and how could you not love them? He said it's a very weird concept to think of hating characters you create. And there's such affection for these fools. And they're very human. They're very like us. We're all fools in some ways. And I think of Aristotle in his Poetics, which is really the first screenwriting manual written 4,000 years ago. I recommend people read this wonderful book. He even describes sitcoms. He's so far ahead of the game. But he said that comedy is about the worst in human nature and tragedy is about the best in human nature, which is a somewhat counterintuitive thought because you think of tragedy the best. These are terrible people in tragedies. But what he means, I think, is when you have somebody like Macbeth or Lady Macbeth, whom Joel Cohen made a film about without Ethan, they have a moment of truth. This is part of the Aristotelian theory of tragedy Toward the end of their crimes and overreaching, they have a revelation about what they should have been, what human nature should have been. And there's a regret, and that, that, that is instructive for the characters and the audience. And so that shows what the best of human nature could be. But comedy is mocking human flaws and vices. And we can talk about, get to Raising Arizona in a minute, but I'll just say my book on the Coen Brothers, The Holder in Human Comedy. The way I decided to structure it was to build it each chapter around a criticism of the Coen brothers by their detractors, and they have a lot of them who, just like any working filmmakers, if you look back over the history of, say, Ford or Wells or Kubrick or any of them, after they're gone, people understand them better, but in their time, they're more challenging, which is good. But people attack them for their combination of comedy and violence, for example, and they call them cynical about their characters. and they criticize their penchant for caricature and ethnic humor. And so each chapter answers one of these strains of criticism of the Coens. But so to get to Raising Arizona, that's only their second film. And I think it's the first kind of real Coen Brothers film. Blood Simple was their first, and it's a good small film noir that they raised money for from dentists and other people in their hometown of Minnesota and made this good, very dark, film noir and they showed their chops and 
that established them as filmmakers, and then they were able to get money for Raising Arizona. But Raising Arizona has this, you can see all the Coen Brothers tropes and techniques in that film, the raucous blend of comedy and extreme violence, and it's all there, and the characters are moronic, lovable characters, but they do terrible things, and it's got that kidnapping plot. They love kid- kidnapping by its nature disrupts everything. They made three films that are big commercial hits. Fargo, four actually. Big Lebowski took a while to become a hit. No Country for Old Men and True Grit. And Fargo is a kidnapping plot similar to this one. A character has this dumb idea that a kidnapping will solve all his problems and he gets into a world of shit, as John Goodman John Goodman puts it in The Big Lebowski. So anyway, here we are on Racing Arizona 1987. I'm surprised you didn't talk about Crime Wave. Wouldn't you not consider that one of their uh, high points? I've written various films that they didn't direct, and I think those films generally aren't terribly good. They need the Coen brothers as directors. And in the early days, Joel was the credited director, and then, but they always worked together. They're a real team. And they also produce and write their pictures. But later on, they both took directing credit. But there's quite a list of films that they've written but didn't direct Crime Wave, The Naked Man, which is really terrible. Gambit, Unbroken, Spielberg's Bridge of Spies, Suburbicon. Bridge of Spies is a pretty good film in some ways, although it's flawed, I think, because it's so different from the real man. James Donovan was quite a, quite a, a remarkably accomplished fellow, and Spielberg turned him into kind of an ordinary lawyer, which is a problem. But it's a good Cold War thriller with some comedy elements and the Coen brothers did a rewrite, but just find films that they don't direct lose some basic quality of control that they have over these disparate elements of their films. That's true of crime wave. I definitely read a lot of criticism of raising Arizona while I was doing my research and so much of it was leveled. Well, again, I guess two things, one, the use of language and two, and I think two relates to one the idea of them making fun of their characters, which you already touched on this whole idea of hating their own characters and making fun of their own characters. And I think the idea of the language, putting these highfalutin words into their mouths was something that really exacerbated it for people. My friend, Sam Hamm, who's a very good screenwriter, he wrote the Michael Keaton Batman film, for example. He pointed out to me that they get this from Preston Sturgis. Preston Sturgis had, has ordinary people speaking very kind of ornate, flowery, highfalutin language. And part of the humor is like some thuggish character will spout beautiful, ornate language. It's part of the humor. The disparity between the person and language is part of the fun in in a Sturgis film. And the Coens are very influenced by Sturgis' tremendous wordplay in their films, just like Sturgis. And also Sullivan's Travels, in particular, the wonderful ending of that film when the main character is a movie director who wants to make serious caparesque social dramas, and he, he winds up in a chain gang. He goes out to see the world, and he's in a black church with a bunch of convicts, and he's despondent. And then they show a cartoon, and they're, they're all roaring with laughter, and it's just it's a great tribute to comedy. And the Coen brothers pay tribute to comedy. They love comedy. It's a survival mechanism. And so they have that same strain, and I think you just have to understand that. That I quote some of my favorite really ornate lines. At one point, I love the character names in 
raising Arizona that Nicolas Cage is called High, and Holly Hunter is Ed, <laughs> wonderful character names. And at one point, she tells them she's barren, they can't have children, and this is the trigger for their kidnapping plot. And High explains to the audience, her insides were a rocky place where my seed could find no purchase. I love that line. That's so formal and ornate coming from this kind of Yahoo character, and it's very funny. But they just revel in the English language and colorful ways of speaking. Billy Wilder does that throughout his work, too. And I think that's a strength. If it doesn't match the perceived ideas of these lower-class characters, that doesn't bother me. Their films are not at all realistic. They're extremely stylized. And that's a criticism, too, that I answer. I have a whole chapter on that, that some people say, well, these films are too stylized, as if realism is the only mode of making films. Visually, they're extremely stylized, and they do all kinds of wonderful things visually, and that's part of their worldview that they create around their characters. Was there any dissonance around the idea of them going from Blood Simple, which so many people saw and was so influential, especially film students, to outright comedy? Were people okay with that? Racing Arizona introduces some of the disturbing tropes that divide people. Jay Horberman, who's a very good critic in some ways, is my whipping boy in the Coen Brothers book. My son went to Stanford, and he's, one of his English teachers said, one of the best rhetorical devices you can use is quote somebody you don't agree with and then attack his point of view. Actually, I learned that from the Jesuit priests who I was taught by at Marquette University High School. What you do in a debate is you get somebody else to express their point of view, and then you tear it apart. So I do that with Horberman. He's very useful because he seems very obtuse toward the cones. He just has some antipathy toward him. And I quote Pauline Kael, who I hate to quote, but she said of Bosley Crowther, the perennially clueless critic of the New York Times reviewer, that you can always take his reviews and believe the opposite because he's almost always wrong. And his review of Shoot the Piano Player, the Truffaut film, I quote, because Truffaut said Americans have trouble with shifts of tone in a film. And Shoot the Piano Player has some of the most radical shifts of tone. It goes from farce to tragedy, and it's very much like a Cohen film. And it came out in 62 in America, and it was not one of their more popular films, but it's a tremendous film when you see it. And, and Crowther complained, what is this shift of farce? It's farcical, and then there's somebody gets shot, and you know what the heck is going on here? And then Dr. Strangelove came out the following year, and he infamously attacked that, called it anti-American. That film changed my life, as it did probably a lot of people. I was a different person, literally, from when I went into the local theater that night in early 64, from the time I came out. The first time I saw Dr. Strangelove, I didn't get it. I thought it was a serious, scary thriller about nuclear war, which we were all terrified by. And my best friend, who was really smart, kept chuckling all the way through it. And he said, let's sit through it again. Back then you could do that. And we sat through it. And then I got it that it's black comedy because we weren't prepared for black comedy back then. And that still bothers and confuses people. I just taught a whole course on the Manchurian Candidate, which came out in 62, which is a fantastic black comedy. And people didn't quite get that film at the time. And Strangelove divided people. But Strangelove taught me it pretty much ended my respect for authority, which I was raised to respect in the Catholic Church and the Democratic Party, et cetera. And I was much more skeptical when I came out at 
but black comedy is a great mode for dealing with serious subjects. And but it offends people to some extent because it deals with the most serious things in the world: nuclear annihilation, et cetera. And the Coens don't shy away from working with the more painful parts of life. And yeah, I think this is the first kind of real Coen Brothers stylized comedy or farce tragedy. It baffled some people and started that divide. I still have a bit of a problem, frankly, with one aspect of the film when they show that biker character who is clearly an allegorical figure. He's, he's, you know, I can accept the fact that he's not, it's not realistic, but it just seems like a heavy handed device. He represents, it seems like retribution or doom for these characters. And I just think it would be better sticking to the two main characters and their dilemma because part of what's going on in the film is Holly Hunter really wants children and she may not be very bright, but she's trying to stop her foolish husband from a life of crime. And they kidnap this child who's one of quintuplets born to this rich family. And it's a very reckless, dumb thing. And then they decide to return the baby. They try to rectify the problem. But and there's an ironic happy ending, too, and it even shows them in old age. I was thinking, it reminds me of Buster Keaton ended college with a very strange coda, which is very moving in a way. It's a frivolous college fun comedy. And then it ends with he marries this woman, and there's a series of shots where they're, they have children, and then they're older, and then it ends with their tombstones. It's a very bizarre ending for a comedy. And But in the Coen Brothers film, it has this ironic coda where they have this kind of Norman Rockwell family life. And I understand irony. My my favorite teacher in high school, English teacher, said, never use irony because people won't get it. And he was correct in a sense, but I use it anyway because I love it. And the Coen brothers use irony freely as well as black comedy. And one thing they do, and I respect this a lot, I start the book by talking about this. They don't give straight answers to interviewers very much. They're play dumb and monosyllabic and Joel was asked what it's like to be a film director. He says, beats throwing trash for a living. I love that quote. But they just don't play the game of explaining their films to audiences. They're somewhat more valuable when they go to Europe. They just have a contempt for the American media, which I understand. But it reminds me of John Ford, my favorite director. I interviewed him at the end of his career and he frustrated me because he wouldn't talk seriously about his work hardly at all, although he had moments of where he would say something candid. But I wanted him to be very eloquent and describe his films. But then I had a lot of respect for him over the years because he wanted you to have your own opinions about his films. He didn't want to explain it for you. And today, when a director makes a film, the director gives 100 interviews explaining everything as if we're children. And that limits the film to some extent. Some directors give very eloquent interviews, but it tends to limit the discourse to some extent because artist is not always totally aware of what he or she is doing, and people take their word for it too much. This is what the film is, but the Coens, like John Ford, just say, here, we made these films, make of them what you will, and I think that's a good trait. I'm sure you're familiar with the fake critic that they employ sometimes to introduce their movies, maybe even do commentaries. I can't remember the gentleman's name. I just remember Roderick James, the fake editor that they use. Are they 
actually seeing things through the fake critic or is it just 100% garbage? There's a wonderful character we all remember in B- Big Lebowski played by Sam Elliott, who's the narrator and he's wry and wise. He's a cowboy kind of character and he's 40 an American figure and he's the chorus, like in a Greek drama. He makes sardonic comments about human life and in a way he's the voice of the filmmakers, but he's ironic and wry like the Coen brothers are too. And he's not trying to lay heavy philosophical views on you, but they are thoughtful philosophical views when you analyze them. But he's got a kind of melancholy about human nature, which is true of the Coen brothers too. They're helps give their comedy the serious underpinnings that we watch these people do reckless, crazy things and we regret what they're doing, but it's in the Aristotelian vein of what fools mortals be, which is regretful. And they're cautionary tales too, in a sense that like we think, wouldn't it be wonderful? For example, in No Country for Old Men, which is based on the Cormac McCarthy novel, Josh Brolin's character comes across it drug deal gone bad and everybody's dead and he finds this suitcase full of money and one thing you shouldn't do is pick up the suitcase and walk away but he's so dumb he thinks oh wow great i made my big score i can walk away with money and that gets him into a world of pain and people come after him trying to kill him and it's just terrible so that kind of is, is partly what the public likes to see in movies is wish fulfillment of wouldn't it be wonderful if I or were a millionaire or whatever and or rich and famous? And then you find out maybe it wouldn't be so wonderful after all. That's part of what comedy does for us. And drama, serious drama. There are cautionary tales of dramas. But part of it is when we go to see a movie, we're safe in a sense that we're not. It's like having a dream. You wake up and you think, oh, my God, I'm glad that was just a dream. I didn't really get trapped in that situation. And that's part of the pleasure of horror films we're scared of our wits or whatever but we're we realize we're we're just watching it in a movie theater and the coen brothers have affinities with horror as well and that's part of the artifice of filmmaking i like too that raising arizona it was a switch of genre but that feels like there are so many genres in there very interesting thing about the coen brothers when they're asked about their influences they don't mention filmmakers they have obvious Debts to Kubrick and Wells and Sturgis, you could, those are pretty clear. But they talk about writers and they talk about James M. Kane and Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler and Flannery O'Connor, who's one of the great American short story writers. And I realized that O'Connor's very late story, Revelation, which she wrote, was published in early 64 and she died later that year. She was dying when she wrote this story. So it's her testament, summing up her view of life is a profound influence on the Coen brothers. And the ending of Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which I think is a great film, and I, in my book I have a whole long analysis of it, and it's several different films, Western stories of different kinds. It's an anthology of the types of films the Coen brothers make from total farce to total tragedy and everything in between. But the ending is quite cryptic. It's a bunch of people crammed into a stagecoach en route and it's clearly unreal and stylized. You can tell through the sky in the background. and It's a microcosm of humanity in this little stagecoach, and they're all squabbling. And there's an 
older lady, Tyne Daly, who's very superior to everybody. She feels superior and she's putting people down and she's horrified by these characters she's with. And then they wind up going to this mysterious hotel, which is clearly the afterworld. They're ascending steps into this hotel they're going into, whatever the afterworld is. And the Cones, unlike O'Connor, she was a, a staunch Catholic and the Cones had a Jewish upbringing and they're very skeptical about religion in the afterworld. But Revelation is very similar, I think, to that ending because in Revelation, it's about a doctor's waiting room, which is like purgatory or the waiting room before you go to heaven. And all these characters are crammed into this tiny space and there's this heavy set woman. O'Connor deals with really bad people like the Coen brothers often do. And she's very smug and superior and putting people down. And then there's this teenage girl who is very much an O'Connor surrogate named Mary Grace. And she's a college student, very bright, but she's grotesque. And she's reading a book called Human Development. And at one point, she just can't take it anymore. And she hurls the book at this awful old lady and attacks her. When she attacks her, she says, go back to hell where you come from, you old warthog. So in this film, Ed says to the biker, give me that baby, you warthog from hell. Very similar to O'Connor. And here you have Racing Arizona early in their career and Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which to date is their last film together. They've gone their separate ways as artists. I don't know if it's permanent or temporary. We don't know. Joel made Macbeth on his own and Ethan has been working on projects. And it's not that they don't get along from what we understand. They just wanted to try their separate ways. And they said that when they started out, they didn't envision themselves as having a whole career as partners. They're just brothers making a film and one thing led to another. But you got their early film direct reference to O'Connor's Revelation, late film direct reference. And O'Connor deals with some of the worst people in human nature, and she's exploring that. And she was one who envisioned her audience as godless. She was not writing for a Catholic audience. She didn't want to be seen as a Catholic writer, very limiting thing, but she was very Catholic. Tommy Lee Jones, who's a Coen Brothers actor in No Country for Old Men, wrote his thesis on O'Connor at Harvard. And he was asked, what does your thesis say about her? He said, she's Catholic. <laughs> That's pretty laconic. But she was very Catholic, but she didn't preach in her book. She's not trying to proselytize for religion. She didn't see that as the artist's point of view. She's writing about vice and human failings and then letting the reader make up his or her own mind about them. And the Coen brothers do that in a sense, too. They don't moralize or lecture about their characters, and they don't have somebody sitting there judging them, which would, is not the function of art. Art is about raising questions and not giving answers. I think today we've lost some of the understanding of that because people want films to explain everything, and studios try to sanitize characters. My friend Stuart Gordon, a light director, uh, he made a film of the wonderful ice cream suit for Disney, and that's a play by Ray Bradbury about a bunch of Latino men in L.A. in 1941, and they pool their money and they buy a beautiful white suit. And there's seven men, and each one gets to wear it one day a week, and it's this sort of magical costume. It's this very charming play. So he made this film for Disney, and Stuart told me, one of the executives, do they have to be Mexicans? That's what the story is about. 
that's the kind of idiocy you get from studios and probably too many directors who say, I don't know, they'll make them angles. People could relate to them more. I mean, this is idiotic, but the Coen brothers have said, we don't worry about this kind of stuff. And their ethnic humor, that's the kind of thing studios get nervous about. When you have characters who are racist, they think, oh, they won't like that character if the character is a racist, but they deal with human life and all its messy reality. And Part of what I think is important about them, we live in this film world today in which the Hollywood film industry, which I have spent my whole life writing about and love in some ways, has really degenerated into utter garbage generally. Once in a great while, you have a good film that emerges from that system. It's usually some director like Scorsese or Spielberg who's got a lot of clout from over the years, manages to make Lincoln or Killers of the Flower Moon, which sounds really good. And it is, it's a struggle making a good film in the system. And most of the films now are mindless pizzazz for 12 to 24 year old males. And that we've gone back to what Tom Gunning calls the cinema of attractions. Film, I think the motto for modern American films could be taken from Tennessee Williams' Streetcar Named Desire, where Blanche says, I don't want realism, I want magic. And when I first started teaching films in around 2000, the students were obsessed with realism. Everything was realism. Is this film realistic or not? And realism is just a style that changes from time to time. But you don't hear that anymore. They don't talk about realism. They just talk about special effects and it. If I never see another CGI effect in my life, I will probably be happy. But obviously, sometimes if it's subtle, if you're making a period film, you can enhance things and you can remove TV aerials and a lot of things much more easily than you could before. But a lot of films today are basically animated films on a big scale. And but the Coen brothers are different from that. And my point is that they're personal filmmakers in a system that no longer encourages personal filmmaking or even narrative filmmaking as much as it used to. And I found out in my research, the way they do that is most of their funding comes from Europe. They're very big in France. The French love the Coen brothers, just like they loved a lot of American directors in the fifties that we didn't take seriously, like Hitchcock and Hawks and Jerry Lewis and people like that. And so they get a lot of their money from foreign sources and that gives them a lot of freedom and they just don't play the studio game. And they started out being totally independent. As I mentioned, Blood Simple was, they went around and auditioned in living rooms in Minneapolis and talked about their plans with a lot of people and got 5,000 here and 10,000 there. And they made a film and it made money. And they have a pretty good track record of making money. They don't have too many films that are bombs. And then if once in a while, they make a film that is very popular. I think Fargo, the reason, that is the film that, is the most beloved Coen Brothers film. And I think it's because you have this lovable central character played by Frances McDormand, who's Joel's wife, and she's one of the anchors of their universe. And she plays this marvelous character of this pregnant police chief in a small town. And she's intrepid and solves this crime, and she's just a wonderful character. And But she represents integrity, certain human values, just Tommy Lee Jones's lawman doesn't our country for old men. He's a sympathetic figure too. And that's one reason perhaps that film is successful. You have somebody that you can relate to and care about despite all the evil and violence that goes on around them. And in both cases, they have some eloquent lines that are laconic, but moving about, I just don't understand 
the kind of evil that goes on in the world. They both have to deal with mindless serial killing, which is one of the things that we deal with every day along with school shootings and that kind of stuff. As shootings, both are trying to keep the law, but it's a futile thing. And so that's a very modern theme. But they, so they have this appeal to audiences and they, I hope they make some more films together, but Carter Burwell, who's their composer, says they have tons of scripts they wrote that they haven't filmed. So maybe these will be filmed. I felt the Coen brothers over the years, yeah, they're successful with the public and they get to make films regularly and some are successful commercially, but they were not, they're still not taken all that seriously by a lot of the reviewers who and brush them off. I think just because they're too quirky and individualistic, it's easy to write people off. But that's what an artist is, and we need more of those in our culture. I had written part of that in a collection of my work called Two Cheers for Hollywood, which came out in 2017. That's when I decided the Coen brothers needed a, a thorough critical review. And so I wrote a monograph on them for that book, and I decided to spin it off into a book of its own because Two Chairs has been selling pretty well, but I wanted more attention for the Coen Brothers part of the book, and I thought Buster Scruggs was really a great film, and so I thought, okay, I'll write a critical, in-depth critical study of that film, which seems like a culminating work. I think it was designed that way. They said they'd been working on these various Western stories off and on for maybe 20 years, and they didn't know what to do with them because they were short, and they decided to do an anthology, and... It seems they haven't quite confirmed this, that it was their testament culminating project that sums up who they are as artists at that point. And then they decided to go their separate ways artistically. And so it seemed like a perfect time. I, I didn't realize when I was finalizing the Coen Brothers book that they were going to have that split. So it, it turned out to be a perfect time to deal with them. It's like when I went to see Ford, he was retiring and a perfect time to write about John Ford. Sometimes I have my finger on the zeitgeist. And, but I think the secret, frankly, is to be out of step with conventional wisdom. Like Mike Wellington and I saw The Searchers in the early 70s, and we thought, what a great film, and it was forgot and ignored. And we wrote a long, critical piece that ran in sight and sound. It was one of the most influential things I've done, and it brought the film suddenly back into prominence. People thought, oh, yeah, this is a great American film. It is some people think it's the great American film. And so it, it suddenly catapulted the searchers onto the sight and sound critics poll in 1972. It had never been on that poll before, and then it started rising in the poll. But that came because we were way out of step with the conventional wisdom. We just saw something we loved and cared about, and we felt it needed more attention. And that's what I do when I'm looking for a book to write, that something has been neglected or misjudged or misunderstood. And I'm exploring that now, and what should I do next? But I'm just wrapping up the Ford project, and I will do update that first Wells book, which was a book very close to my heart because I was writing that when I was in my college years. I was working as a dishwasher. I spent three years writing that book, and or is it four years? I was living right around the corner from where Wells had lived when he spent a year in Madison at age 10. He was going to public school, grade school, I didn't realize he was living right around the corner. I was in a student rooming house, and he was living in an apartment in 1925. And he had gone to a school that was no longer there. So 
one of the reasons I was attracted to him was he's from Wisconsin, like I was, and so I've written three books on him. So anyway, I'm keeping these old books alive and reevaluating parts of them, and that's part of what you do. To you have to be attentive to your subjects as they keep working or as their reputations evolve. And also with Wells, his career is still fully active because we keep finding new Wells things that. Other side of the wind, I spent five years acting in, and I spent 48, it took 48 years to get it out, and I was trying to raise money to finish it. I was part of that relay race to help it get finished, and then I was a consultant on the completion, and it, we finally got it out, which was a miracle in 2018. And there's still Wells films that I've seen almost everything he did, except Don Quixote. I haven't seen much of that. I've seen about an hour of that maybe in Jonathan Rosenbaum has seen more than anybody else. It's in four different archives in Europe. That's the Wells film that really needs restoration. And I don't have 48 years left to work on that film. But if there's anybody out there, hey, guys, gals, get on to Don Quixote. It's another fiendishly complicated project to finish it, but it really needs finishing. I saw a 40-minute assembly of footage that Costa Gavras put together for the Cinematheque Francaise, and it looks wonderful. And there was this awful version put on 92 by Jess Franco, who was this hack Spanish director Wells worked with. He put out this really awful-looking version that was cobbled together from Doopy prints, and he mixed in a documentary Wells made on Spain, and it's just appalling. But Costa Gavras had access to original footage, and it looked gorgeous, and that was Wells's dream project for a long time. It Peter Bogdanovich told me way back around 1970, he had seen a lot of Don Quixote in Rome. Wells showed him parts, and he said it's Wells' most Fordian film, which is true. He loved John Ford above all directors. And so that's the project. But there are other things, too. Stefan Drassler, the Munich Film Archive, has put together collections of scenes from films that weren't finished and 30-minute versions of The Dreamers and other films, and he's restored The Deep, although Oya Kodar won't let him release his restoration of The Deep. It has some technical problems, but you have to go to Europe to see some of these films. They're mostly at the Munich Film Museum, and I keep saying, Stefan, put these out in a box set, but there are a lot of problems with Wells's work in terms of ownership and finances and everything, and it's a shame, because once in a great while, they play in archives in the U.S., Part of my raison d'etre at this point in my life is I want to see these films I've been hearing about my whole life. That's why I wrote my book on Lubitsch. How did Lubitsch do it? I wanted to see all these films. And so I had to go to Europe a couple of times and see the films. It was just a marvelous experience. And now I'm doing audio commentaries for Kino Lorber and silent German Lubitsch films, some of which have been never seen in the U.S. or rarely seen. The Doll, I Don't Want to Be a Man, Madame Dubarry. The Oyster Princess, Meyer from Berlin, When I Was Dead. Some of these have come out in the U.S. before, but they're beautifully restored, and I've been doing commentaries. So that's part of what you do as a film historian, too, is you help these films get a wider audience. Professor McBride, thank you so much for your time. This has been so great talking with you, as always. Thank you, Mike. It's really wonderful talking to you because you're such a maven and you know so much about film history, and you always ask these good, challenging questions that get me thinking. So really appreciate the time.
right, we are back and we were talking about raising Arizona. And yeah, there's not a whole lot more for me to say about this one. There's one great review line, and I wish I would have written down who said this about this movie when it came out. An episode of Hee Haw directed by an amphetamine crazed Orson Welles. That's what someone. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> Because that was the other thing you can find on YouTube is Ebert going, yeah, just not loving it. No, not loving it at all. He just really did not like this. And yeah, to your point from earlier, Keith, not a lot of critics enjoyed this. I think I've read Kale and Saris. They were both coming down on it. Yeah, it just really wasn't making any friends. But but look how common that one is. I mean, look how many of our of the movies that are 20 years later are the classics. Critically very divided. I mean, the, the Kubrick film that they referenced, Dr. Strangelove, I remember the, the New York Times review of that was horrible. And like, this isn't funny and you can't make jokes about a nuclear war and what president would be this incompetent and America would never have a president this that with this much of a walking joke. And, you know, just it, it's so funny when you go back and look at reviews of things that we now think of as as great works of art. And it's, but not just films, it's books, it's plays, it's paintings, it's. Critics of the moment are rarely the ones that get to have the final word because time is what really, I think, unveils what has meaning and what has value. And just because something works in that moment, you know, and a lot of people run to see it, has little to do with what's going to last. And I think what the Coens have is richness of the world they create is what lasts. And if you think about it, in, in almost every art, it's really richness is a big thing. I mean, novels, whatever. And to me, it's like whether, you know, they're like, James Joyce or something. It's like, it's just such a rich world that they give us over and over and over again. And that lets people return over and over. You know, a lot of movies are terrific, but they're very simple. They are what they are. They do what they do. And once you've seen it, there really is never a need to see it again. You can see it 25 years later and you're like, yeah, I saw that. And it's just like I remember it. And with the Coen Brothers movie, I find every time I go back to just about every one of their movies, there's something new. There's a feeling I didn't have before or a detail, but but even sometimes a whole emotional thing that you realize, oh, wow, I missed that. or I, And that richness is what's great storytelling. And and film doesn't have enough of that. I mean, you know, novels have it more, but even novels, it's special. And to me, they're like that great richness that, you know, that, that makes all the sorting through a lot of dross worth it. I hadn't read much Dickens and I just did a, pro- I just read a, a collection of all of Dickens' novels and it was, like took me two years. But I mean, he had that. It was like, it's so much fun. And each one of them, you're like just in this world of amazing characters and people you sort of forget come back. And 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 to me, that's what the Coens do in film. And, and they combine every aspect. They combine the visual and the music and the sound and the production design and the writing and the acting. And, and it's just like everything comes together and it happens over and over again in their films where you just are like, okay, that was amazing. And then you see the next one and that one's amazing too. Thinking about this in terms of The Big Lebowski, because while I was watching that, I was thinking, oh, in a week I'm going to be recording about Raising Arizona. And just to see Jeff Lebowski has at least two dream sequences, and he's running away from, he's got castration anxiety and that with the nihilists with their big scissors coming after him. I think Lenny Smalls is a much more real threat, but of course it's two different movies. You needed the nihilists to be a joke. Whereas here, you need Lenny Smalls to be very much a real threat. The way that he, at one point, shows up in a big explosion with black smoke and then comes roaring through that on his motorcycle really works. They make him 
so threatening. Appreciate that they have that prosthetic on his nose, so it makes him sound stuffed up, but it really lends that uh, that whole idea of him being part bloodhound and the way that he catches that fly in front of Nathan Sr.'s face. I just love that little detail of that and that great extreme close-up. And that performance is so great, and and how they directed it, and because he's so low key, you know, so often a character like that would be busy proving how menacing they are all the time, and it would just be a hat on a hat. And they kind of all got, including the actor, but I think they were, you know, between the clothes and the motors, he he doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't have to. So consequently, by being by underplaying, by talking quietly, but it's so much more fun and great because he doesn't have to, it's all proven for him. And so he can just talk about his childhood and talk about being sold. And, he, and you know, he's so innately intense that it's more scary and funny because the actor's not busy trying to make it scary and fun. And that reminds me of, obviously, a serious film is No Country for Old Men, where you have the Anton Sugar character who he doesn't get loud. He just talks very quietly. How are you? Okay. Flip the coin. Heads or tails. Just very flat. And that's what makes the menace, as you were saying. It's that understanding that there's something behind that, that they don't need to show you it. They don't need to be... Yeah, somebody somebody really scary doesn't have to prove to you that they're scary. Though his entrance, where all the small things are being punished, when he's shooting the rabbit and that poor little lizard... When the flower catches fire as he passes by it. I love that. I love how he just shows up at the hole, that he shows up at the, that he's got the scent of those guys and follows that. And I don't, must be a chemical thing that they did, but when he comes into the furniture store and he lights that match and it's a trail of smoke down the, down the woods that goes like, see the, the match getting lit and you get to see the trail of smoke like it's just little things it's little things like that yeah the way the cigar and the match both just appear in the sand but also the thing of like when he's killing the the sweet little bunny and the flower and the, the, he never he doesn't cackle he doesn't do all the villain things it, it's almost like doesn't even have it doesn't even affect him anymore he just kills because that's what he does because he's like the angel of death but and that, again, is what makes it so much more funny and creepy and interesting is that because if he shot the bunny and jumped and he was like, ah, you know, it would feel like, oh, oh, yeah, I've seen that. But the fact that he does that and then it's like he's not even registering that he's doing it. He's just killing stuff because that's what he does. That's what makes us get pulled in as opposed to lean back. You know, OK, yeah, I get it. He's here. And that feels, again, like that connection to the character and no country for old men because it's like we don't really understand why he's there he just seems to be following his path and killing in his which just seems to be what he does it's like we don't really get what is his motivation why is he doing this no he has a loose motivation but it doesn't seem to be like that's the real driver there i'm trying to think of other great villains in coen brothers works jerry lunford maybe the swede Poor Buscemi, especially when he's got the hole in his cheek and he's just all, oh man, just all gory in that movie. He's paying for it. Yeah, that's rough. No, I can't think of any other ones that are similar. And it's only just in Keith 
bringing it up that I could see that connection between those two characters. Completely like goofball and real high drama. And But they seem to be of a similar nature in that way. Although charming, you know, villains that let you in, in a way, by their by their energy, you know, whether it's sugar or whether, you know, but even lady killers. I mean, it's very different. But again, you know, Hanks is that kind of soft-spoken, you know, it's funny as opposed to being terrifying, but yet that thing that that people who do bad things are interesting if they're not acting bad, you know, that that's, that's like way more interesting. And to be honest, it's probably a lot more to reality because I think a lot of people aren't just sitting there playing with their mustache, <laughs> sinister, oh, I'm so evil. No, they're just living their lives and doing their thing. They just happen to do fucked up shit. He's not really a villain, but to think about John Goodman's character in Barton Fink, and again, he's supernatural, the way that he summons the fire and that he's there in the hallway with all that fire around him. I'll show you the life of the mind! Or he shows up again in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou as the uh, the clan leader, the Cyclops with the one eye. And yeah, they, they don't really go for the one lone villain because there's a lot of villains in Oh, oh Brother, Where Art Thou? There's a lot of them. And same thing with Big Lebowski. There's a lot of villains in that, including, I would say, the titular Big Lebowski. And there's like a real hierarchy of their villains. I mean... They'll often have a lot of people who are morally questionable or do bad things, or but there's always like, well, there's this one, and then there's this one is even worse, and this one is even worse than that. This one's even more scary than that one, you know. And that's often a lot of how their world works is that instead of the one villain, which is a traditional movie thing, that they're much more layer after layer after layer, and there's like this solar system of of darkness, and you know whether the films are funny or, or serious, and. That leads you to all sorts of interesting questions of, well, who's really bad? And, you know, who's the victim and who is the victimizer? And it's it's one of the things that they do that's really interesting is 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 give you characters who are who do bad things, but they're not as bad as this other character. And then you have to get caught in that whole I mean, well, high is that character. I mean, high is a thief and a criminal and all that, but in this world, he's the good guy. And that's what they go to there. That, that's a place they go a lot. You know, they, they, even their heroes usually have really deep, deep flaws, sometimes scary, sometimes, you know, but but their heroes are flawed human beings. The man wasn't there. But, and then it gets you this whole question of, well, what is villainy? What is moral responsibility? What is, and yet it never feels good for you. I mean, that's the thing that you're talking about. You know, you've got the philosophy major, you know, co-writing and but somehow what's so genius is they raise all this stuff, but you never feel like, oh, I'm at this movie and I'm getting a lesson, you know, but you do get them. You walk out of the movies and there are films and you think about guilt and responsibility and good and evil and love and meaning. And, but you never feel like it's being imposed on you. It's just, it just invites you to, to think about that stuff. To me, it feels as we got into it, that someone probably could write a book on the philosophy aspects of these movies and referencing what kind of moral quandaries these characters represent or certain philosophical arguments and certain philosophers and all of that stuff. 
I would read that. That's actually a really good idea. Even just thinking about the these invincible supernatural villains that they have, I seem to remember that that Walsh took a lot of punishment in Blood Simple. That it was maybe he felt a little unstoppable, a little Terminator esque, and then you get to that interesting fight that they have in Hudsucker Proxy with the old man that's been narrating the uh, African-American gentleman and then the guy who's working on the clock and just all of that stuff going on and how clock time really can be controlled by Hudsucker Tower. I love that stuff. And I won't even go near Miller's Crossing because it's been way too long since I've seen that one. But it's full of the same richness. And and look, and then there's the ones that are very overtly like Serious Man, which is a film of theirs that people don't talk about that much, but really talk about philosophy and richness and moral complexity and, and yet still completely entertaining. But man, that's like that one's like a like a college thesis. How I was talking about raising Arizona spoke to me as someone who was raised working poor. A friend of mine who I worked with at public radio, he goes, as a Midwestern Jew. A serious man really spoke to me. There was something about that movie that it just felt like home. It felt like it was speaking to me. To your point from earlier, Keith, that all of the worlds that these guys create feels like I could go walking around in. Whether it's true grit, burn after reading, whatever it is, it feels like I could just open a door and walk into this world because it feels so fully formed. It's funny. Somebody I once worked with, a cinematographer, said a wonderful thing, which is, you know that a film's working when you feel like you could follow any extra or any person with one line and make the whole movie about them. But we're choosing not to. We're choosing to follow the story. But but when when you're shooting this film, when you feel that, you feel like everything is is has it a complete life. That's when he said, as as somebody filming it, he knows it's good. And I feel like that's what the Coens always seem to have. It's like the person in the background. You could move, you could pan over and do the next 20 minutes on that. And they choose not to, but you could. And that's what, that's what they bring. That's, that's amazing. Is that sense that every part of that world is as full and fleshed out as the parts we're choosing to see. I would love to see what the hell's going on with Glenn and Dot. What's their story? Yeah. Nathan and Florence, Arizona. Hell, even the guy with the Jugs magazine (laughs) to, to be in store. The old feller that sells them the non-funny balloons. You want to talk about visual staging. That kind of reminded me of No Country for Old Men, where he goes into the convenience store and just the way it's shot, like the certain, the editing scheme. So I was having flashbacks to that as I was watching it too. All right, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Here come Dennis and Sue Ann. He's such a nice boy. She's such a sweet girl. You've never met two nicer kids. They'll scare the life out of you. In Pretty Poison, Dear Dennis, clean cut, hardworking, the boy next door. Give me two weeks, two weeks to keep my nose clean. Dennis! Look, we're talking about my life, Mr. Asnow. We're talking about my one and only life. And sweet Sue Ann, a real all-American doll. I hit him twice. You see, he started to go down, and then I bopped him on the side of the head. Together, they share the joys of being young. Anthony Perkins is Dennis. Tuesday Weld is Sue Ann. They're just a couple of crazy, mixed-up, fun-loving, homicidal kids in Pretty Poison. Hey, Dennis, when do we do something exciting? 
That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Pretty Poison. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Rob and Keith. So, Keith, what is happening in your world, sir? Oh, you asked this, and I never have anything great to tell you. <laughs> I'm doing what all independent filmmakers do, which is I'm out trying to put together money and deals. And depending on what time of what day you ask me, I'll say it's going well or it's not going well. But other than that, I'm trying to really just enjoy my life and feel lucky to have a wife that I love and friends and family and appreciate it all. And, you know, work keeps going, doing whatever it happens to do. And Rob, how about yourself, sir? I am finishing up my master's. So I'm, I'll be spending the summer writing my big capstone paper and I'll be happy to be done with that. It's been basically since August of 2020, I've been taking anywhere between three to five classes every semester. So after about three years of solid school and three different degrees completed, I am now ready to say goodbye school. And I have to go out into the real world and actually do real work, which means I may actually have time to watch more than five movies a year. The five movies being that I think I've been on the show with you before. Thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. (laughs) 